0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Nick Carter is a partner at Castle Island Ventures. In this conversation, we talked about Bitcoin, mining, regulation, and market structure. I always enjoy talking to Nick, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is LMAX Digital, the number one institutional crypto exchange. They offer clients the deepest pool of crypto liquidity on the planet, underscored by a 100% uptime track record through volatility spikes. They leverage LMAX Group's liquidity relationships and ultra-low latency technology. LMAX Digital is the market-leading solution for institutional crypto trading and custodial services. You've never heard of LMAX Digital? It's probably because you're not an institution. They have no retail; only institutions. They feature a central limit order book, streaming spot Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and Bitcoin Cash, all paired with U.S. dollars, Euro, and Yen. LMAX Digital—they're secure, they're liquid, and they're trusted. Learn more at lmaxdigital.com/pomp. Again, lmaxdigital.com/pomp. Next up is Compass Mining. Compass Mining is the world's largest marketplace for mining hardware and hosting. With Compass, everyone can mine Bitcoin. Their team makes it easy to start mining wherever you want, at home or in one of their 23 hosting facilities around the world. Through the Compass Marketplace, retail miners can access mining hardware with similar prices and purchase plans as the world's largest mining companies. Compass miners own their machines, they choose whatever mining pool they want, and they mine directly to their own wallets. Miners who don't want to host their machines can order ASICs directly to their doorstep. Simple and low-cost hosting agreements coupled with best-in-class customer service are the reasons why Compass is the simplest and most popular way to mine Bitcoin. Start mining your own Bitcoin today by visiting compassmining.io. Again, compassmining.io. Go check them out and let me know what you think. Last but not least are my friends over at OKX. Crypto is all about democratization and freedom of choice, but many companies limit their offerings to centralized trading products. The crypto companies leading the pack in terms of innovation are those that extend access to the industry's cutting edge products and services, bridging CFI and DeFi. If you're searching for a platform that reflects crypto's promise of a more open and less restrictive financial future, look no further than OKX. On OKX now, you can easily switch over to the new DeFi mode. Connect OKX's bespoke Web3 wallet via browser extension and start exploring opportunities at the bleeding edge of crypto. From the DeFi dashboard, you can monitor your portfolio of self-custodied assets across a range of blockchain networks and generate passive income from yield farming with top DeFi protocols. In the NFT marketplace, you can participate in exclusive drops and trade non-fungible tokens without secondary market fees. Meanwhile, the GameFi section is your portal to the latest and greatest in play-to-earn and blockchain gaming. Venture to the forefront of crypto innovation and connect with OKX DeFi today. Again, go check them out at OKX. That's where you can find OKX DeFi. All right, let's get into this episode. I hope you guys enjoy this one.
1: Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only.
0: All right. I want to talk about uh, a couple of different things. First, uh, we're going to go around the world. I think that's the best way to do this today. Uh, Let's start with positive news, and then we'll get into the the darker, deeper stuff. Um, Mexico. There's a senator in Mexico who's now saying that uh, she's working on um, a legislative bill that they're going to put forward uh, to make Bitcoin legal tender and openly talking about Uh, making it legal tender exactly like El Salvador. So El Salvador did it. Here's the playbook. Oh, here in Mexico, we should do this as well. I think we saw South America, Central American countries, uh, plenty of them saying like, this is interesting and trying to figure this out. Um, We've got uh, two quotes uh, that we can pull up uh, to give you an idea of this. So, uh, you know, we need Bitcoin to be legal tender. If not, uh, then it's very difficult to like take action or do anything if it's not actually recognized as legal tender. And then she went on to say, "Uh, it's clear to me that financial exclusion. is one of the public problems a few of us have addressed with alternatives. Uh, This type of technology is allowing us to generate an alternative so that millions of people can be included in the financial system. So like, this is not a, uh, what it appears like, speculating on price or anything like that. It's more so just, let's make it legal tender, let's get more people in the financial system. Is this going to be the default? Like, do you think every single country is going to eventually do this? I mean, this is what we expected to
2: happen after El Salvador. There would be a wave of more of these, uh, you know, in particular, Latin American countries. That uh, maybe you're chafing at the dollar-based uh, financial system. Uh, we'll see banks getting turned on to Bitcoin as a settlement network, probably sooner than you expect. Um, but yeah, we're, I mean, who knows if this is going to pass in Mexico? I can't tell you. I know the dynamics of their Senate down there. But we're seeing similar statements made by many Latin American politicians. I mean, even Russia. Not to you know get ahead of ourselves. They've done in the last few weeks a favorable pivot. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some respects towards Bitcoin. So everyone sees the merit of a neutral settlement
1: network. It's just when is it actually adopted and does each country kind of take its own stance on it? You might need a catalyst,
2: yeah. You yeah. might need to be excluded from the established
1: network or have something uh, you know, go wrong. So should these countries like Mexico, for example, when they go ahead and make a legal tender, should they do the El Salvador playbook of just, hey, let's try to acquire a bunch of Bitcoin with the, as much money as we can?
2: Well, those are distinct concerns. One is acquiring a hard asset in your foreign exchange reserves alongside gold, for instance. You might want to do that to hedge the dollar. I, you know, I think you probably want to acquire an equivalent amount of Bitcoin than your fraction of gold owned so that you're fully hedged. Um, that's sort of a monetary question. The other one is, uh, do you want to incorporate your financial sector into this neutral settlement network? Uh, both have, you know, there's a case we made for both, but one doesn't necessarily imply the other. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The other piece of this too, I think is, um, we see here in the United States, uh, lots of politicians. I, I was saying yesterday, there's maybe, I don't know, 20 like important elections, you know, or, or like, uh, battlegrounds, if you will, uh, on, uh, the midterm elections, I think that I've had in almost every single one of those elections, one of the candidates reach out to me or somebody I know and be like, hey, I'm pro-Bitcoin, I'm (laughs) pro-crypto. And, uh, you know, the mayor of New York obviously saying like, I'm pro-Bitcoin, but not Bitcoin mining. It, It highlights maybe there isn't a complete understanding of like the nuances of this stuff. But there is now, it feels like, uh, a recognition by the politicians, like, if you're not pro this technology, like, you are going to have a hard time with a certain uh, subset of the population.
2: Totally, yeah. And and on both sides of the partisan divide, too. Mm -hmm. We have politicians in Congress right now that are progressives, that are Mm pro-Bitcoin. You'll be hearing from them soon, I'm sure. Uh, But yeah, in all of the congressional races, it seems to me that at least one of the candidates has a declared position. Some of the races, both candidates are pro-Bitcoin crazy so cancels out <laughs> are, are
1: they declaring like being pro bitcoin you think because they actually are or because they know that it might get um a new audience like some new voters to kind of back them a little bit um because a lot of them don't really do a lot with bitcoin right they don't hold it whether that's for like regulatory regions or whatever um but some of them just say like yeah i'm pro bitcoin and then yeah. they move on yeah some of it is political hedging for
2: sure yeah. just you know why not incorporate this new demographic um some of it is very sincere you know, I, you guys have talked to a lot of these people. I'd talked to a few of them as well. And, you know, there's a very sincere commitment. They'll accept Bitcoin donations. They learn the issues, you know, the full scope. And, uh, and you know, they generally uh, frame it as a pro innovation
0: stance.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like Tom Emmer
0: is pro Bitcoin. Yeah. There's definitely people who understand. This. Tom Emmer is one, Warren Davidson, Senator Lummis. Like we can go through and, and we're going to leave people out. So don't take any <laughs> one candidate that we mention or don't mention as a, a endorsement or not. But, um, I do think that uh, it's going to become much harder to identify who actually understands it, right? And so if you had asked me, uh, I don't know, four months ago or whenever, when the New York City mayor came out and was like, oh, I'm going to take you know my paychecks in, uh, in Bitcoin, uh, we're going to make it a, a crypto-friendly city, all this stuff, it's like, okay, that all sounds great. And you really only have the talking points to judge them on. Well,
2: get them on the show and quiz them on the fundamentals. <laughs> so,
0: so. I uh, wasn't going to go there, but yes, like have that them
2: do is do a circuit, a shot two fifty six.
0: Yes. Like, th- like now, uh, what I'm realizing is a lot of them are not exposing themselves actually to having the conversations. Like it's easy to say the talking points and then kind of back <laughs> away. Right. And it's like, Oh, okay. I scored my points and you know, uh, I don't want to uh, say something, uh, bad. Uh, but also just the longer time that we have to evaluate them, like they eventually will say something where you're like, okay, they really get it or they don't. Yeah. And, um, so seeing this stuff in Mexico, like, I don't think that's a US specific thing. Like, I do think you're going to see this around the world. People are going to start saying, like, hey, I'm going to use my uh, sympathetic approach or my understanding of Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, whatever component of the industry, as a way to separate myself from my political candidates. And, like, that's kind of the game theory Bitcoin has been talking about for, you know, a decade. And it's not just
2: political expediency, especially abroad where crypto penetration is higher than it is in the US. I mean, I think I talked about this on the show last time too. You want to identify the jurisdictions where there's much higher structural levels of penetration. It's places like Nigeria, India, Vietnam, um, Southeast Asia, um, obviously parts of Latin America, uh, certain African countries, Eastern Europe, no question. All of those are probably ranking above the U.S. in terms of crypto penetration. And so there, it's it might just be a matter of actual necessity. Here in the U.S., we have sort of the luxury of like, Um, you know, maybe Bitcoin's an interesting technology. Let me position myself as pro-Bitcoin. In other countries, it might be a genuine necessity.
0: Yeah, no, I I completely agree. Um, All right, let's switch gears. We're going to talk about uh, Russia and Ukraine. I want to to separate out this conversation. First, let's talk about the Russia-Ukraine situation itself, and then we'll talk about how the media is covering it here in the United States. Um, But when it comes to Russia and Ukraine... Uh, There's a lot of geopolitical complexity. I don't understand all of it. I don't think most people understand all of it. Uh, But I do think that we have seen, uh, as you mentioned earlier, maybe not a 180, but definitely a move to become much more pro-Bitcoin, pro-cryptocurrency, pro-decentralized technology, censorship-resistant technology over the last maybe four months or so from Russia. Is that directly kind of connected to uh, sanction threats and, and all that? Or is this just no, as bills got, you know, kind of to this point, it happens to be coincidence. I, it's definitely not a coincidence.
2: Yeah. I mean, look at the chronologist. The Russian central bank says, we're anti-Bitcoin, we're going to ban Bitcoin usage. Then they do a, uh, almost a 180, or rather they get overruled as the exclusion from SWIFT becomes a more material threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, the U.S. is already, I believe, levelling sanctions on on certain Russian banks. Um, if Russia invades Ukraine, there will likely be a full financial deplatforming of Russian banks from the financial system. How that's going to work, I don't know, because Russia is a huge trade trade partner with Europe, as we know, you how, know. Like, how does
0: that? Like, what happens?
2: I mean, the amount of natural gas they're piping into Turkey, Germany, Italy, uh, the EU. So someone, you know, the financial exchange has to occur there. I don't know what happens in that situation. But if the U.S. deplatforms Russia from Swift, that's going to be the last time they're going to get a chance to do sanctions like that because Russia has prepared themselves for that eventuality. They've, I believe, they built an alternative to Swift. I think China built one as well. Russia's increased their bilateral trade with China; it's small but growing, uh, and Russia has adopted this um, at, at the sort of federal level, um, somewhat of a pro Bitcoin stance. They have welcomed Bitcoin mining after you know a few months ago making noises about being contrary to Bitcoin mining. Uh, and the ban that the Central Bank of Russia was trying to promote on Bitcoin has been overruled. Mm-hmm. So this to me looks like an energy-rich nation with a lot of uh, stranded energy, of course, where Bitcoin mining already occurs and oh, a nation facing potential exclusion from the financial system, from the U.S.-dominated financial system, from SWIFT, in a nation that um, is de-dollarizing, I mean, if you look at their U.S. Treasuries held, mm-hmm. is declining. They're de-dollarizing in terms of their, you know, foreign exchange reserves. They're increasing the amount of gold they hold, so they're actively de-dollarizing. The conditions are perfect for them to embrace Bitcoin at the state level. Now, individual Russians it might be much more questionable and difficult in terms of them getting access to Bitcoin. It looks like legally, there's going to be barriers to that. But at the state level, it looks like their interests are aligned with Bitcoin.
0: So there's a couple of things uh, that I'm going to throw out there uh, and then we can talk about them. One, Russia is 12% of global oil production, right? So huge in terms of uh, potentially being cut off from exporting that. What is the impact? How does that play out? Uh, uh, What is the impact of oil prices and and gasoline, et cetera? The second is... uh, obviously they've been de-dollarizing. There's literally articles, uh, for example, uh, Russia and China partners in de-dollarization. And, and, and so, uh, this isn't a new idea. They've been doing this, uh, for some time. Uh, there was, um, a article, uh, let's see, um, in CNN yesterday that said Russian banks imported $5 billion in foreign cash in December so it's not just gold, it's not just Bitcoin, right? It's, it's it's very obvious that they're saying, hey, let's get diversification here in, in these various currencies um, and so that we can, uh, we can have that. And then uh, I think that um, uh, the other component uh, of this is this uh, increasing relationship with China. And uh, I was talking to a group yesterday and somebody asked me about the sanctions. And I posed the question, which I said, I don't know what the right answer is, but if you're a Russia... Over the next 10 years, who would you rather have? You have to pick one or other. It's a binary decision. Would you rather have the United States as your trade partner or China? Right? And, like, just from a pure economic consumption standpoint, like, China has four times more people than us. Now, that isn't the only thing that matters in terms of total people. But when you start to unpack some of this, like, the answer isn't as clear as it used to be. Right. And it feels like then when you layer in uh, kind of this uh, dependency on a dollar based system where sanctions are obviously on the table at all times, it's almost like they're playing defense more so than they're playing offense. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, we've we've employed sanctions as our primary offensive weapon as a substitute for kinetic warfare in this country for, I don't know, 20 years now, probably financial sanctions were the first thing we used. Um, you know, instead of going to war. And okay, maybe that was, uh, you know, that saved some American lives. But the thing about sanctions is they grow blunt with overuse, mm-hmm. right? It's like a video game where you can only swing your sword so many times before it breaks. Uh, and that's what's happening here. Russia has been preparing for this. They knew that sanctions were on the table and they've been actively preparing themselves for a long period of time. So if we go for the nuclear option, kick them off swift kick their banks out of the financial system, at least the one we control, they'll you know, that weapon won't work again, right? At that point they'll have become anti fragile. They'll they'll be more resilient and we'll never be able to use it again.
0: Does this um there's a couple other components here, which, uh, again, I don't know the answers. I have opinions, but l- let's kind of talk through it. So uh, one, we obviously saw the Afghanistan withdrawal happen in August, September of last year. Uh, there was a lot of talk at that point of, oh, this kind of got botched. It didn't look so great. Is Did the U.S. lose the war in Afghanistan? Therefore, will China become much more uh, kind of uh, offensively postured for something like Taiwan, et cetera? Well, actually, we're seeing Russia be a little bit more aggressive and, and, and kind of posturing it in an offensive way. And so like, did that play into it at all? Or, or is there a change in their viewpoint? Uh, the second thing is obviously, um, you know, Biden, uh, he tweeted, I believe, uh, when he was, uh, before he was elected, but going into the election, basically like Vladimir Putin won't mess with me. He knows I'm, I'm tough. He doesn't want me to be president. He wants uh, Trump to be president because Trump will listen to him or, or whatever you know, now here we find ourselves of like, maybe that wasn't true. Um, How much of these like, what seemingly were unconnected or unrelated situations that really rely on like who our leadership is or how our military operates in other parts of the world, do you think play into these types of situations? Or is it just like people are pulling at straws and and probably doesn't matter?
2: No, what's happening is there is a structural long-term shift of the US going from being a global hegemon from projecting power to every corner of the globe to turning its focus inward. And that's where we are, that's where we find ourselves. We are withdrawing militarily uh, from the rest of the world. And uh, that might work out fine for the US actually, It probably work out badly for everybody else. Because we're not going to be protecting those trade routes, for instance. We're not going to have our blue water navy in every nook and cranny of the oceans uh, protecting shipping lanes. We're not going to be ensuring energy security or food security for the, for the entire globe. We're turning our gaze inwards. We've clearly got our own issues to resolve here domestically. And there's just less of an interest in projecting power abroad. That does mean forsaking former allies. That mm-hmm. is what's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just me describing the situation, not saying it's good or bad. Yeah, uh, and and so we see this in Taiwan. We see this in Eastern Europe. And ultimately the. US is probably going to back down in both places. Yeah. and uh, and we're going to focus inward. We've been underinvesting in our military. We're saddled with debt. We can't really maintain the same lo- level of spending.
0: Um, and yeah, our focus
2: is inward now for better for
0: us. J- John and I were uh, joking a couple of weeks ago of like, oh, there's a uh, talk that the economy is going to slow down, a potential recession, interest rates, like all this stuff. Like, w- what's the chess move, right? It's like, let's go to war, right? <laughs> like, just crank up the economic growth uh, by basically spending on, you know, let's go take over a country, let's go whatever. I don't think anyone, uh, was like, Oh, Russia is going to be the the target, right? There's a bunch of other countries that I think uh, people would have put on that list. Uh, is, does that play into it at all of like, we need economic growth. And so like, let's fire up the war engine and, and, uh, at least the threat of it means that we can spend money without people freaking out.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, the previous time, um, uh, government spending is the share of GDP was this high. It was in world war II. Right. Mm-hmm. But we've entered that level of Structurally elevated spending without a war. I don't know how we can layer on a war on top of that. (laughs) I don't know if we can afford that, frankly. The other thing the wars do is they make the price of oil spike. I don't know about you guys, but like pumping gas is pretty expensive these days, right? Yeah. If oil goes high enough, that also kind of um, pushes us towards a recession because energy is sort of the most fundamental commodity. That means food is more expensive, transport is more expensive, Mm -hmm. logistics everything, supply chain. So we can't really actually afford oil to go that much higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, Europe can't afford to have Russia cut off all their gas exports. So there's a lot of reasons why a war wouldn't make sense here, not to mention, obviously, the fact that it's between two nuclear powers.
0: Yeah. So uh, before we talk about more on the gasoline part, John, what do you think about uh, the whole Russia situation in terms of uh, uh, what appears to be posturing and in potential invasion? Like, what do you think the U.S. does?
1: I mean, they're open about their playbook, it sounds like, right? Like, we're going to impose sanctions on you if you go ahead and invade the Ukraine. It's now coming to fruition that I don't think Putin really cares. I think he's like, we're going to do it if we want to do it. And if not, uh, like he's towed the line, right? He moved troops near the border. Everyone's like, oh, you're not going to invade. He's like, oh, it's training exercise. <laughs> and then continuously has gone down the line where it looks like he's going to invade. He has moved troops into the Ukraine um, with the military. So it really just depends. I think— Putin and Russia would love to get off the dollar. They would love to price oil in something other than the U.S. dollar, whether that's Bitcoin, whether that's another currency, uh, whatever it is. Is just They would love to get off the dollar because it, it kind of straps them into, hey, you, you have to use this and you have to be intertwined with the United States and other uh, foreign countries and allies with the United States. But yeah, I agree with Nick's point is we have a lot of problems on our own soil and going to war with Russia, um, another massive nuclear um, country, that's not good for the U.S. It will increase spending. It will give the U.S. an excuse to kind of raise the debt ceiling again um, and everything that goes along with war. But no, I don't think we should be going to war with Russia. Um, unfortunately, we're kind of playing 9-1-1 for the entire world right now. Uh, but that is, uh, that is like it's a catalyst of we have a massive military and everyone knows it, right? So t- traditionally, we have used that military to kind of flex our muscles around the world. Um, and I don't know if we can continuously do that with – how much money we spend on our military every year. I mean, our Pentagon has never passed an audit. We don't even know the location of some buildings, <laughs> right? Planes. We left a bunch of stuff in Afghanistan. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it plays out, but it's, it's kind of like a gray area what Russia is doing right now. So here's
0: a crazy thing for you. I, I couldn't find, I couldn't remember if I tweeted it or wrote about it. Uh, in November of 2018, I wrote, this after seeing a, uh, I think he was speaking at an event, and this is Vladimir Putin openly talking about this. He basically said that uh, the days of the US dollar as a global reserve currency are numbered. And uh, at the conference, he basically said what everyone thought he thought, right? Uh, and he said, We don't have a goal to shift away from the dollar, the dollar's moving away from us. The volatility of dollar transactions make many economies around the world want to find alternative reserve currencies and create payment systems that are not dependent on the dollar. It's not just our problem. We see what is going on in the world. Just look at how the gold reserves of countries are dwindling, including those closely allied to the States. Dollar assets are decreasing, even among the largest holders of dollar assets. This is the result of imposing sanctions, including connected with the dollar. I think this realization will come sooner or later, and the world will look for alternative savings and transaction methods. And so, obviously in 2018, Bitcoin wasn't like, oh, Bitcoin's going to be the solution, right? Uh, I think there's people who thought, hey, maybe one day, uh, but this was noteworthy enough where I was like, he's saying it out loud. Right. And that was surprising to me. Um, and so when you start to look at this, like it's four years ago, three and a half years ago, right? Like they've been thinking about this for a while and they've been preparing for this type of stuff. And so I don't think that like we're catching them by surprise, right?
2: Not remotely. And we've also been threatening sanctions on Russian banks for years and years and years, right? Since, since I think probably 2016 when, you know, the Russia scandals were, were breaking. So, they are aware that they're facing imminent exclusion from the dollar system. Of course, they've been preparing themselves for that. Uh, now they're pretty well positioned to deal with it, right? They have a low debt to GDP. They have you know bountiful energy reserves that the rest of the world needs. They're de-dollarizing. They have tons of gold. Um, you know, so so they're I'm you know they're, I'm not going to say they're ready or they want yeah. all their banking their banks to be kicked off of Swift and become somewhat cut off from the rest of the world but they've been aware that this is a possibility and this is a problem with sanctions is sanctions make the dollar network bad right they mm-hmm. put holes in the dollar network the money is the ultimate network right if you want your monetary unit to be ubiquitous and work for everyone you can't impair the you can't put barriers inside of the network but sanctions put political gating factors in terms of who can have access to the world's reserve so by being so aggressive with sanctions the U.S. is accelerating the move away from the dollars of the global reserve. That's yeah. just a fact. Even the Europeans have been trying to get off it. When we sanctioned Iran, the Europeans went and built this uh, Instex vehicle so that they could try and end around the sanctions. And those are our allies. <laughs> our allies got so fed up with our sanctions regime that they tried to build an alternative. didn't work. It'll probably work the next time. Do they go back to gold or Bitcoin? Like, Is that what they run to?
1: I don't know. If they know. move
2: away from the dollar? I I think they'll have to, well, there's the reserve component and they're going for non-dollar assets, clearly, but there's also the transactional component. And I think that's more challenging. It's unclear what they would do, but yeah, they'd have to build some sort of uh, messaging system for banks to communicate.
0: So another piece of this is how it's being covered. And uh, there was obviously this tweet from CBS News that everyone's just laughing at, right? Which says, uh, the U.S. economy has been hit with increased gas prices, inflation, and supply chain issues. All true. Due to the Ukraine crisis, not true. <laughs> and so uh, John went and pulled a bunch of information today. So this is the the tweet that uh, everyone obviously is uh, is laughing at on the internet. And if we go ahead and we look at uh, gas prices, uh, obviously it's up. But you can see here on the far right that since the beginning of twenty twenty, it's up. Right after that uh, that drawdown, and then if we go and we look, there's the uh, RSM uh, chief economist who basically said, you know, look. War is uh, incredibly bad from a human and economic standpoint, but the economic burden is going to fall the hardest in the middle and working class, right? Which I I agree with. I think most people will agree with. If we look at inflation, right? It's hard to claim that the Ukraine crisis is the cause of inflation, given that inflation (laughs) has been above 5% (laughs) since the middle of 2021. And then if we look at, uh, I think this again is uh, gasoline prices. uh, There has been some impact, right? Given kind of the Russia, Ukraine, Russia, and Saudi Arabia uh, kind of linking up rather than Saudi Arabia back in the U.S., but the impact is like, we've gone from like, let's call it $3 and 40 cents to like $3 and 50 cents. Right. Like, like it's a, a somewhat immaterial increase when you go all the way back to, uh, well, there's been a dollar 50 increase since the beginning of 2021. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. And, and so like, is this just like a media outlet being stupid or like, should we expect more of kind of this like gaslighting and, and the use of current conflict to explain, economic problems at home going into like a midterm election. Like how do you think of this?
2: Of course they want to explain away the the fact that there's enormous inflation, the highest generational levels of inflation anyone living Mm -hmm. has seen. Um, And and they want to ascribe it to a single culprit. A few weeks ago it was corporate greed. Um, A few weeks before that, it was antitrust. It was price gouging. Exactly. For the grocery stores, they make 3% (laughs) profit. I mean, the corporate greed thing was just so preposterous. It's like, (laughs) all right, so corporations are super greedy now. They were super generous in 2008. (laughs) (laughs) They were greedy in the 70s. They were less greedy in the early 2000s. like, come on, guys. Like, antitrust, oh, it's monopolistic. Uh, You know, it's concentration of power. It's like... Come on, these are well. Mark Zuckerberg obviously is making uh, your food prices go up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it's like, oh, you know, um, you know, Kroger—they've got they're a four percent margin business. You know, they're engaging in uh, price scouting in in the most competitive industry, which is groceries. You know, I mean, it's just crazy stuff. And so now, now we have a new pretext for uh, inflation domestically or or energy crisis, which is preposterous. Like the reason that energy is expensive in this country, uh, the reason that you know, we're paying the highest energy prices we've paid uh, this winter in decades is because we've de-emphasized the extraction of hydrocarbons. We've made it politically difficult and expensive to extract the core fundamental energy source we need, right? Uh, New England, states like Massachusetts, they're right next to some of the biggest natural gas deposits on the planet. They're importing natural gas from places
0: like Africa. Why are they doing that? Why is that now politically like taboo? Uh, Subject. It's just part of. Is it the the environmentalist type argument? Is like, hey, we don't need to do this here. Let's go take it from somewhere else, even though it costs more. There is a
2: utopian belief that we can substitute all hydrocarbons for wind and solar, which isn't possible on this timeline, um, and you can't do that in full. Uh, There is a political. a rejection of building pipeline infrastructure so that you can transport gas cheaply. The consequence is you have states like Massachusetts burning oil this winter, which is the worst uh, in terms of uh, uh, you know carbon intensity, importing gas from abroad even though there's gas right in our backyard because we do things like ban fracking, because we do things like uh, prohibit these pipelines from getting built. That means that we now have an energy crisis brewing here at home. And America is a, is a resource-rich nation. There's no reason whatsoever for us to have an energy crisis. But we've inserted political gating factors to actually extracting energy that we need. Mm-hmm. And we've tried for this accelerated transition away from hydrocarbons too fast,
0: and now we're sort of bearing the brunt of that. It, it's wild to think about how important energy, oil production, natural gas, et cetera, is in the world. And people who don't pay attention to that stuff are like, oh yeah, you know, I get gasoline. That's basically their interaction is the gasoline they put in their car or their electric bill, right? Uh, but this is probably the most geopolitically important asset or commodity uh, in the world, which... Number one, you know what yeah. happens when energy prices get
2: expensive? People starve because fertilizer is made from energy and fertilizer is what allows us to feed human beings, you know, 8 billion humans on the planet, high yields, you know, relatively scarce arable land. So there's a genuine significant human cost to allowing energy prices to skyrocket like we're seeing.
0: And the thought process right now, again, my kind of elementary understanding is uh, the United States has gone to Saudi Arabia, Russia, and many others and said, produce more oil. We we need to basically in a marketplace where there's an imbalance of supply and demand. We need more supply uh, coming out of the ground so we can drive these prices down and we can kind of correct the problem. Saudi Arabia and Russia a couple of years ago came together and said, you know, basically we're going to be buddies. Uh, and they've decided they're not going to do that. And that's a pretty big deal because they produce a lot of oil. And so naturally what it does, is it puts a strain on us based assets, uh, or other types of allies that we have to be able to get that oil. Uh, but once those two decided they weren't going to do this, and if you then overlay the whole idea, like maybe we're actually going to prevent Russia from exporting oil, or maybe they just decide to stop exporting oil, uh, it feels like this is not going to be solved anytime soon. And actually, we may see higher prices before we see it correct back lower, right? Absolutely.
2: I mean, the geopolitics of energy are just stunning. So we're now in the position where we're begging OPEC to reduce prices. You know, Why the heck would you want to put yourself in that position? We used to be a net energy exporter, right? We used to produce all the energy we needed and then some. And then because we de emphasize the ability to produce energy domestically, we're now re-dependent on foreign nations abroad. Not only that, we could be exporting plenty of liquefied natural gas to Europe so that they're not dependent on Russia, right? They're wholly dependent on Russia, Germany in particular. And so they are politically beholden to them uh, because they need gas to heat their homes this winter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we could be alleviating the European political crisis if we just exported more natural gas to Europe, which we are totally able to do but the last decade has seen a total de-emphasizing of local energy production. And so now we're in this terrible position.
0: So let's play a hypothetical situation. And the last thing we'll talk about with Russia, um, 12% of global oil production in the country, and they just decide we're not going to sell it in dollars anymore. We're going to price it in Bitcoin. What happens? Do we, are we like literally dropping bombs in uh, uh, Moscow tomorrow? Like, What, what do we do?
2: I think Bitcoiners would become extremely reviled in this country, <laughs> more so than we are already. We'd be accused of being Russian stooges, probably. I
0: mean, <laughs> and by the way, we're laughing, but literally online, people who are saying, hey, hold on a second, and questioning or asking uh, for more thoughtful analysis of the situation. I've already seen people being accused of being uh, Russian assets, etc. Yeah, cetera.
2: I saw a take today saying, like, Bitcoin facilitates war or encourages war. It's like, what kind of world are these people living <laughs> in? All right.
0: So, yeah. so if that was to occur, there would obviously be uh, some portion of the uh, political regime in the United States who would say, you're holding an asset that they're pricing their assets and their oil in. We don't like you. Fine. What's the geopolitical ramifications?
2: I mean, all the times the U.S. has gone after some dictator militarily in the last uh, 20, 30 years has been because they've tried to price their commodities in something other than U.S. dollars, whether it's Saddam, whether it's Gaddafi.
0: Um, I always use those two as the example. Like, there's two guys recently who tried to do it, and they're dead. Yeah, They by buy U.S. hands.
2: Yeah, Chavez tried. We didn't succeed there. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's not a coincidence, right? Uh, there's no other real explanation for the Iraq war, frankly.
0: Is there, um, is it fair to compare uh, those three that you just mentioned with Putin? Like he, 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 they he didn't f- have the leverage that he has. He, he feels like he has leverage, but he also feels. Um, well, he does have leverage. That's what I'm saying. You know, he, he feels yeah, like he has, he has he more leverage, he but, but also uh, it feels like um, it's a different type of country. He's more defense mechanism, yeah. nuclear weapons like like it's just very different scenario.
2: he's more deliberate, and yeah he, they are a nuclear nation. they have more nuclear warheads than the u s does. We don't really have an ability to interfere with them that much. I mean, mm-hmm. we haven't for you know what seventy eighty years now. Do you think it's likely they do this? I don't think so. I think uh there's a lot of brinksmanship here, and I think people are addicted to the soap opera and you know, they just see life through like, as if it's like an HBO series or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I, and maybe Putin will extract some some territorial gains from the Ukraine, but no, I do not think we see full-fledged warfare here. I'll put that on the record.
0: Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you that, that that's very hard. Uh, both, it's hard to see from a um, U.S. citizen's appetite for that, right, just in terms of like the, uh, especially again, there's an election coming up, right? And and so, uh uh, that feels, um, in the past maybe, going to war would provide for uh, an ability to rally and unite citizens and use that as a leverage point for an election. It feels like it would have the opposite effect now um, and, and would almost guarantee that uh, the the, um, the current administration would lose uh, control. But also it feels like uh, Syria is always like one of my favorite ones to point out. Like, are we at war with Syria? We keep dropping bombs over there and killing people and doing all this stuff, and like by the way, there's some bad people, right, and like so it's not discounting what some people have done, et cetera, but like why do we do that? Why can we do that? Well, it's because like what are they gonna do? It's kind of the the response right there's like an American imperialism or arrogance that comes uh with it. I don't think you can do that in Russia like if we go and we drop bombs in russia like i I would be worried, but yeah, you can't, not against the
2: nuclear you know, regional power like that. And a lot of people think this is gonna be like Iraq where Bush's approval rating skyrocketed ninety five percent after that. No, this is gonna be like the Soviet Union invading Afghanistan to try and regain some credibility as the regime was crumbling. Yeah. That's the equivalent of this.
0: Yeah. I, I tend to agree. So so uh I think we see eye to eye, John, do you think there's gonna be war? Like actual violent
1: No, conflict? I, I No, I don't think so. It's on the table for sure, but I think it's going to be a lot of bark, no bite. And if the bite is, they're going to annex part of the Ukraine a little bit, um, take some territorial stuff, but I don't think they're going to like get off the US dollar within the next year.
0: Yeah. Um, I think that there's a higher probability of them pricing oil in something other than dollar, not necessarily Bitcoin, but something other than the dollar. But what I don't think is going to happen is it's going to be like a, a... press a button, hundred percent of all of our oil, all in this new currency that we've chosen. Uh, and we're never going to use dollar again. I actually think what becomes, uh, it's kind of like the El Salvador strategy. Like, Oh, we price in dollars end, right? It's not an either or it's an and type situation. And it just normalizes. And like, to your point about the deliberate nature, how do you get mad? Well, it's priced in dollars and rubles. Yeah, yeah. You want, you know, wh- whatever currency, Bitcoin, whatever. Um, but that does feel like that would be another kind of milestone moment of the geopolitical, you know, kind of chess match of like, I think every political leader around the world knows like, that's the thing that the, that, that when you poke the bear, all hell comes down. Right. And we've seen example after example of it. And if you really, if you really want to take a, you know, kind of move your chess piece forward, like there's what, what, you go into Ukraine, right? Uh, You stop exporting your oil uh, and kind of cause chaos around the world. You price your oil in a different currency. There's maybe like six or seven things we'd come up with that you could do. They're already doing some of them, right? So like what else is left? Uh, I don't know. It's a gradual thing. You don't exit,
2: um, you know, a global reserve currency immediately. You can't do that. They are very sticky. You know, for instance, the UK stopped being a global power capable of projecting power and you know after world war one the british pound was a global reserve currency until around the 40s so the currency is often the last thing that um exits stage left after an empire has lost power and control so it might be the case that the dollar outlasts outlasts the u.s empire yeah right the dollar might be the stickiest thing yeah but yeah you can't get rid of it overnight
0: um before uh before we finish, we've got another 15 minutes or so, uh I want to make sure we talk about Canada. And uh I think the best way to summarize it is uh we went from zero to a hundred real fast. In a place of the world where if you had said, you know, stack rank the authoritarian dictatorships uh or those likely to become one, um Canada's not, I might not even think to put them on the list, right? Like forget where they're ranked. Like it's just like, it, like an afterthought in any sort of violation of democratic ideals or, or ethos or any of that stuff. Uh, now, all of a sudden it's like everyone pointing and being like, this is the example of like what to expect in the future. Like what's your read on it? I'm shocked by it. I'm shocked and scandalized. Honestly,
2: yeah. uh, this kind of behavior we're seeing from Trudeau is the kind of panicky uh, you know, counter to human rights, counter to civil li- liberties, behavior that we see from despots in places like Venezuela, uh, Egypt, you know, like from places with no political legitimacy. I mean, you can get rid of trucks parked in the street without engaging in wholesale financial sanctions uh, against your own people. It's not that hard to get rid of trucks in the street. You can tow them. That's what they did, right? That uh, "quote unquote" emergency ended, right? They cleared the streets. They ended the protest. That, that's completely within their rights. But then going 12 steps further and saying, we are going to enact financial sanctions against everyone that participated in this protest in every financial dimension. you know, Banks, brokerages, securities exchanges. We're going to erase you from processors. the financial system. We're going to cut you off from all of that. Every possible conceivable dimension of your financial life. We're going to do that extrajudicially. Right? We're not going you know, get to get a court order. Uh, we're just going to go ahead and preemptively do that. And then we're also going to target everyone that supported you and retroactively make them uh, effectively criminal uh, and treat them like some sort of hostile foreign combatant. I mean, what Canada is doing to uh, you know, these truckers, you know, these protesters, is what the U.S. did to like, Al-Qaeda after 9-11. It's that level of aggression in terms of financial sanctions. It's something that I would never, never have expected. They're sending Uh, tweets
1: from uh, the Coinbase and Kraken CEOs to have them investigated. And you you had a funny tweet about you. Canada appears to be determined to become Venezuela.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, that might be tough on Venezuela, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) The the part to me that, uh, uh, it just caught my, like, I I don't know if it was just... uh, I hadn't thought about it or like it just all hit me yesterday. Um, I I tweeted this thing and I was like, the United States is sanctioning Russia. China is sanctioning U.S. defense contractors for selling uh, equipment to Taiwan. And Canada is sanctioning its own citizens. Like sanctions were, uh, to your point, a tool in your toolbox reserved for enemies of war, right? And to do it to your own citizens, I think just like one, people are like, wait a minute this is like insane. But two is to do it with almost spite. Yeah. Right. Like, like, like it's one thing if you said, Hey, we're going to, uh, you know, Nick, you're a bad person. Cause we disagree with you and you're funding, uh, this protest and that protest, uh, killed a police officer. Right. And, uh, even in that situation, I think most people would have a problem with you going after the financial assets, et cetera. But, you could see how it would be easy for them to present a case of like, there's money being uh, used for funding of a violent situation. I mean, we've all seen the videos like there's, you know, the, the the quintessential example is like, there's a bouncy house right, right that the kids are jumping up are and down. They're handing out flowers to the police officer. You know what I mean? Like it was disruptive for sure, but
2: it was not violent. I mean, you yeah. can always like cherry pick one or two instances, but Yeah, I mean, the civil liberties being violated here. Due process, forget about it. Not imposing uh, criminal sanctions on people on an ex post facto basis, right? Because that's one of the most startling things is when the donations happened to these crowdfunding events. It was not illegal. It wasn't illegal. And now retroactively, (laughs) they're going back back and saying, (laughs) because you did this, we are going to criminalize that and target you for financial sanctions. I mean, it's, absolutely preposterous. It feels like we're at a nexus of history right now. It really feels like it. I think a lot of people that were not Bitcoiners woke up over the last week. I really think that. I think they realized, wow, this can happen in the West. And you know, I was poking fun at them a little bit because it's like, okay, so the example of Turkey didn't compel you. Lebanon didn't compel you. Venezuela didn't compel you. You know, Places where financial repression was very explicit, and, and happened in the last couple of years. That didn't compel you, but Canada does. It's like, okay, it has to strike close to home. But, you know, I guess that's how humans reason, right? You always put more uh, credit in things happen close to
0: home. The United States believes Canada is like its little brother, right? Like, like it's like, oh, like one day Canada wants to be like us, which again, isn't necessarily true. But that's, I think, how a lot of Americans have always looked at Canada. It's like, oh, there are nice North neighbors. And, you know, uh, uh, basically they do what we say. Uh, they want to be like us and, uh, and we're good. And then this happens, and they're like,
1: "Holy shit, this could happen in the United States." Well, Bitcoiners woke up to the uh, to to Bitcoin with inflation at first, and now they're seeing the censorship and um, the kind of the financial freedom that it gives you over time. B- this has to be, be the increase. biggest
0: uh, uh, marketing and awareness moment for Bitcoin in years. Yeah, um, and uh, I, I jokingly said yesterday, but not really joking, Justin Trudeau's the CMO of Bitcoin right now. Hundred percent. Right. Like <laughs> I mean, he's just literally out here like, Hey, this is why you guys need this. And so if you go back, a lot of people forget, and and obviously uh I've seen you talk about uh WikiLeaks was one of the early kind of moments of awareness globally. And it's actually, uh, if my memory um serves me correct, uh was one of the reasons why Satoshi actually walked away. Correct. Was because he uh basically said, like, listen, we've kicked the hornet's nest, uh, I think it was the, the terminology he used, and uh this is too early. The infrastructure's not in place. I don't want to be the person.
2: And the swarm is headed towards us. Yeah, yeah. exactly. The swarm is upon us right now, let me tell you. Bitcoiners, this is a time to stand up and uh, and stick up for, for yourselves.
0: Have you done anything differently after this in terms of... Taking Bitcoin off an exchange, move money, or like, are you doing anything from an individual basis that you're like, ah, eh, this is probably uh, uh, a good idea, even if you don't feel like you personally are in the crosshairs or or whatever.
2: I think we'll all be politically exposed here. I think Bitcoiners need to prepare themselves for that. I haven't changed anything. I did have a moment of introspection where I thought to myself, all right, you know, I have some resources and some ability to you know change things in the world. Have I done enough? to protect the next Canadian trucker? Have mm-hmm. I done enough to empower these people to uh, you know, take financial sovereignty? And honestly, the answer I came up with was no. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, okay, I need to start using my resources to actually you know, empower people who are Bitcoiners, who are facing some sort of tyrannical panopticon surveillance state that's intent on politicizing all money. I don't think I've done enough. So yeah, I had that come to Jesus moment last week.
0: It was a tough realization, honestly. It's one that I think is becoming more real and more people are like realizing like, oh, these people are literally going to push the pace of... Overreach as fast as they can.
2: Yeah. And we have people that I know in the Bitcoin community that I've met, you know, been following them on Twitter for years, literally hung out with them at conferences that are now being considered terrorists by the country of Canada officially. They're named in injunctions. And it's like, wow, this got real really quick. You know, I'm, I don't know if it's going to happen to us here in the US. We're in the great state of Florida. You know, we're doing good. We're politically, you know, probably a little more protected, but wow, this got real really quick.
0: Yeah. Uh, one of the things that uh, we've seen in Canada as well is that uh, a number of crypto exchanges, their CEOs were advocating for self-custody um, and uh, those people are now being looked at for potentially violating sanctions put in place to curb uh, checker protest. And so uh, as a recap, Canadian police ordered all regulated financial institutions, including crypto exchanges, cease trading, freeze assets of designated persons uh, that were involved. There's these 34 wallet addresses that, that were identified Um, and so, uh, according to reports, what's happened so far is 219 financial products were frozen. 57 entities have disclosures with them. 253 Bitcoin, uh, were shared with virtual currency exchangers uh, or addresses. And then there's proactive freezing of the account of a payment processor that had about $3 million. So this is all the stuff that's already occurred. And, uh, what we're starting to see now is uh, we have this tweet from uh, Brian Armstrong, which basically says, concern to see stuff like this happening in any country, especially in an economically free place like Canada, self-custodial wallets are important, and he puts a link to, uh, to Coinbase. Now, from there, we have uh, the Ontario, Ontario Securities Commission, which has sent those tweets from Brian Armstrong and others uh, to police because they believe this offered advice on how to evade the sanctions on funds. Uh, and you as John mentioned, Canada appears to be determined to become (laughs) Venezuela. Um, Is this, are are we literally in a world where saying, hey, you should put cash in your pocket, right? Like one of the best uh, examples that I saw was somebody said, the equivalent of the government trying to tell self-custodial wallets to freeze users' assets is like telling Louis Vuitton find all the Louis bags in the world and go in those bags and and freeze the cash. Don't let anyone spend the cash in the bag. Like people are like, wait, what? But that's the equivalent in a software standpoint to what's happening here. Are we now going to criminalize or attack people who are saying you should use a self-custodial wallet? Like what's going on?
2: Yeah, it's a naked act of aggression against uh, US firms. I mean, Brian Armstrong, I don't believe he's Canadian. I mean, Coinbase (laughs) is a US firm. And the government of Canada is coming in and saying it's criminal to suggest that people take ownership of their own funds, which has been the default forever. I mean, that's almost unbelievable. And, you know, even this framing of custodial, non custodial, non custodial is the default. That just means having funds in your own possession. <laughs> custodial is the aberration, non custodial is just the normal thing. Um, so even the linguistic reframing that's occurring is very sinister. But then literally going after Jesse Powell and Brian Armstrong here is, is obscene. Honestly, I think th- like it's it should be treated as an international incident, the fact that Canada is investigating
1: American companies here. They're investigating for saying self- <laughs> self-custodial wallets are important. That's it. He just said it's important. He didn't say go ahead and get around these sanctions if you go get a, a wallet. Like... This is the kind of thing where
2: if it was any other dictator doing this, it would be like the international uh, community would be con- condemning them, and you know the UN would be passing resolutions saying this is crazy. We're uh, you know we're we're officially People. condemning this uh, behavior. You know if it was uh, if you you know the, the president of some some oil rich nation, uh, you know in the Middle East or something that was uh, harassing dissidents like this and and doing extrajudicial sanctions on them and harassing foreign companies it would be universally condemned. Because it's Trudeau, he gets a pass, apparently? I don't think so. I don't think he deserves a pass. I,
0: I, I'm taking a stand. I'm not going to Canada until the situation is resolved. <laughs> same. I mean, <laughs> I didn't have anything there urgently to yeah,
1: do. you guys are saying talk. you guys have something to get do doing. Well, was saying, if anyone's gonna was us, going to invite us, we're not going. Well, I think it was Bukele that said, like, if I was doing this, there would literally be an all-out war. Okay, yeah. so let's let's talk about Bukele for
0: a
2: second. And if we have Bukele, the president of El Salvador, <laughs> lecturing Canada on what it means
0: to, you know... He's, civil liberties yeah he's had a number of tweets where he essentially is insinuating if i did he's never actually said if i did this you guys would be all over me yeah but but that's the point yeah he's basically insinuating that you guys always are pointing and saying i'm the dictator i'm the bad person you know all this stuff but like this is way worse and i think that that's part of this which is like again people may not like it but like he's got a point
2: he's got the moral high ground here W- which the president of El Salvador is the moral high ground
0: yeah w- which also uh you know look he he's playing with fire a little bit, right of like again, you can keep poking the bear, poking Canada is one thing, I saw he was also uh you know uh going at the United States, he's going at a number of these countries and uh It's very clear what he's doing, what his strategy is. Um, But it is
2: an incredible inversion that a small country like El Salvador, on the fringes of the international community, is now taking the moral high ground against Canada, which is you know your just you know your classic member nation of all these international organizations.
1: Yeah. It's crazy," he what? said. "They're taking, they're, they're directly threatening journalists with arrest. Talking about Canada and the Ottawa police, aren't they the ones lecturing other countries about freedom of the press? <laughs> yeah. So he's had like a number of
0: these where he's, which by the way, like that is a fair point, it's, right? It's yeah. I mean, I, I
2: think the like this neoliberal institutional order that you know Canada and the U.S. and like UN, World Bank, IMF, like this whole order that we've been promoting since World War II, since Bretton Woods." It has ended, right? We, we in the West don't have the moral high ground if we're going to behave this way towards protesters. Yeah. We have no moral high ground whatsoever.
0: Um, all right, my last question on Canada. Uh, Marty Bent was in here yesterday. He wrote a, uh, an exquisite piece on the uh, uh, Canadian nipple crisis. <laughs> 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 have you heard this uh, this theory? Oh, yeah, I'm quite familiar. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I buy it. What, you buy it? Yeah. So you think that uh, Trudeau's mother uh, has a high probability of actually having, uh, I guess, becoming pregnant via Fidel Castro, not via Justin Trudeau, uh, or I'm sorry, uh,
1: Pierre Trudeau, who is- uh, You think Justin Trudeau's the son of Castro?
0: I'm just saying, look, you
2: know, consult the evidence for yourselves, <laughs> fellas. Look at the color of the nipples. It's quite telling, um, you know, draw your own conclusions, fellas.
0: P- people yesterday we we brought up the photos we did the whole thing side by side comparison brown nipples confirmed we saw the photos yeah brown not um, pink i mean there's something there it looks like a lot like Castro. it
2: looks like him he <laughs> behaves like him
0: and <laughs> and i, I got to say that yesterday people the canadians loved it they were like wow
1: <laughs> not exactly the conversation
0: that the american uh, the americans have but uh uh it, it i mean listen i i think that uh who your father is doesn't necessarily mean that that's who you genetically are, you know, uh, no. uh, predisposed to follow from your political uh, uh, leanings. But it does feel like um, your mother, who likely had a big part of raising you and is sympathetic to certain views, just naturally it shapes. She unquestionably palled around
2: with Castro. Yeah. And, and look, you don't <laughs> inherit the sins of your ancestors, but you should probably seek to not behave like Fidel Castro, regardless of who your father
0: is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that would be a pretty, that's, that's, that's a good life, life right rule. Yeah. <laughs> Don't become the the modern version. Um, all right. We'll finish up with the U.S. Uh, what, what's your general take right now? It feels like there's this executive order that everyone keeps talking about that, is likely probably going to come at some point. My guess is that, you know, there's a couple distractions in the administration of like, you know, Ukraine, Russia, uh, et cetera. Um, it seems like more politicians are coming out in favor of Bitcoin. We've seen, uh, what I think is, um, maybe a little bit gimmicky at the state level in terms of this legal tender stuff, but still, you know, kind of normalizing it, pushing it forward. Um, we have, uh, Conoco, uh, Phillips, I think, it, say pronounce it, uh, now being more public about the fact that they are, uh, having miners go ahead and monetize and gas flaring. Like, it just feels like we're at a point now where like this is a thing in the United States. Is that kind of your read?
2: Yeah, the full normalization of Bitcoin has, uh, is well underway in the U.S. I think I talked about this last time when I came on the show. The energy sector is becoming integrated with Bitcoin mining.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: All of these energy firms, the, the supermajors, are mining Bitcoin directly or indirectly. Whether they admit it is a different thing. Canoco Phillips, I think it might have even been a leaked slide from one of their decks. I don't even know if they went out and admitted it really. So keep an eye out, right? Keep an eye out. The energy and once these, it's the largest energy firms in the world that all admit that they're mining Bitcoin. The questions around Bitcoin mining kind of melt away a little bit because it's like, no, like I am a renewable energy firm, and Bitcoin is helping me salvage these uh, energy assets, or it's helping me bring more renewable assets to market. Like those stories are true. It's just a matter of servicing them. So the energy side, not worried about it. Politically, we see so many candidates coming out and being pro Bitcoin and demonstrating deep understanding. Uh, my guess is probably Congress flips in the midterms, and then we get uh, you know Republicans on the Financial Services Committee in both the House and the Senate that are explicitly pro-Bitcoin, some of whom have been on this show. So a lot of the legislative losses we've taken uh, will erase them. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I think we're seeing a full normalization. The one thing that I'm concerned about is probably stablecoins. The stablecoin discourse is very hostile in this country. There's a faction that wants to promote a CBDC and wants to regulate away stablecoins to force them to get banking charters, force them back into the regulated, uh, highly regulated, you know, banking system. That can't be allowed to happen. We have to push back against that. Um, And so it's just, I think it's a race against time to get the stablecoin sector sufficiently large that we can survive any of those state level assaults on it. What are your thoughts on CBDCs? I'm incredibly against them. I think I've never seen a CBDC proposal from any Western central bank which protects uh, the right to privacy, transactional freedom, transactional autonomy.
1: I've never it seen actually that. takes
2: that away. Yeah, I mean, CBDCs are not going to be the digital equivalent of cash in your wallet. They won't give you the free choice of who to transact with, where and when. Uh, they are always the discussions are always around embedding AML, embedding surveillance, embedding control into them and I think they are one of the most centralizing forces in world history. I mean, you know, the the, despots of, the great despots of history did not have access to the CBDCs. Can you imagine what they would have done <laughs> if they'd had them? Yeah. They would have just unpersoned millions of people at the stroke of a button. We've seen what governments can do, including nominally liberal democracies up, up north. We've seen what they can do when they're vindictive and spiteful. If there had been a CBDC in Canada... They wouldn't have had to go through the motions with all these orders and injunctions. They would have just turned off everyone's
0: cash. Mm-hmm.
2: I don't think we can allow CBDCs to happen. Certainly not in the U.S.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's it's fascinating because um, I think in 2018, 2019, I went on uh, on television and they asked me, you know, if you're in the United States, what would you do? And I said the number one thing the United States should do in terms of increasing the accessibility of the U S dollar globally is they should digitize the currency and make it so that anyone with an internet connection can immediately get dollars in a safe, uh, secure way, uh, without having to go to a black market, without having to worry about their local bank, confiscating their funds, you know, all all these things that I think would be the, um, the pro argument for accessibility on a global basis. I think as we've seen more and more of the proposals, the pilots, the, the, uh, uh, testing, all this stuff, It's like, dude, there's no positive impact that you're going to tell me now that overrides the nasty stuff. And, like, I actually think the scariest part about it is that we only have our imaginations to fear. So, like, if you said to me, like, what's the bad stuff? Personalized inflation rates, expiration of money, financial censorship, you know, social credit system, like, all that, and we're already like, dude, we're out. These people have all day for decades to think about what to do. <laughs> They're going to come up with way worse stuff.
2: And you know what's crazy is talk about exporting the dollar globally, giving regular folks access to U.S. bank system assurances, dollars, which everybody wants, especially if you mm-hmm. have hyperinflation or a currency. Stablecoins accomplish that. Of course. you know, look at you know, Talk to any of your portfolio companies, active exchanges globally. What do people want? They want stablecoins. Mm-hmm. They want to engage in currency substitution and move from the Nigerian, Naira, uh, you know, to dollars. They want to move to dollars. Stablecoins accomplish that. The private sector accomplished that. CBDCs won't do the same.
0: So if I look... Uh,
1: There's $155 billion of stablecoins floating around. We've here. looked, the private sector is normally pretty... Uh, they're more efficient, and they're quicker, and they're smarter about accomplishing these things than the public government.
2: And they they give you a um, a product which is fundamentally more private and respects individual liberty m- much more so than your public sector alternative to a stablecoin. Yeah,
0: yeah. I um uh, I just looked, and uh, of the $155, dollars of stablecoins, one hundred thirty of it is just in Tether and USDC. Right. So about eighty billion is in Tether. Uh, and fifty-two billion or so is in uh, is in USDC. So it's very obvious people want this stuff.
2: And right? what's yeah, I mean you know look at there's a Wall Street Journal article about uh, Turks uh, engaging in crypto dollarization. Um, they were you know buying gold and they were buying uh, Tether, right? And you know a lot of people uh, talk about Tether like oh you know we don't trust Tether, whatever. If your alternative is holding, because you can hold dollar deposits in the Turkish banking system if you want. But that's just not a safe way to hold dollars, right? Because there's a chance that the equivalent of the corralito occurs and your your dollars are forcibly converted back into liras and devalued, right? So if you want genuine property rights associated with your digital dollars, you want a stable coin. And in that case, Tether was uh, what people were going for in Turkey. And that's probably part of the reason Turkey was so hostile on crypto, because the lira was being uh, de-emphasized. Uh, and, and you know, people were spontaneously moving to stable coins. So this stuff is like geopolitically incredibly significant, totally overlooked.
0: I like to just throw my hands up sometimes and say like the world's gone mad and like we're not going to change anything. But I think if there's one thing that we are seeing is uh, there's an entire generation of people who uh, really thought of themselves, let's just call it the Bitcoin community, the crypto community, however you want to label them. They're realizing technology alone is not going to get this done we're going to need to drive awareness. We're going to need to put the right candidates into political seats. We're going to need to make sure that elected leaders are educated on these things. We're going to need to build technology. We're going to need to uh, make sure that various jurisdictions understand there's a global competition underway for assets, individual citizenship uh, uh, um, uh, kind of, Uh, Where places uh, businesses are domiciled, all this stuff. And so there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's just there's a lot of work to do.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I don't actually see this political technology distinction. Like the technology is political, right? Like Bitcoin is imbued with certain political ideas, right? Uh, So are stable coins. So is uh, neutral financial infrastructure. Obviously, I think the ideas are good. But (laughs) when they collide with the real world, they have a political impact, right? Because the real world is premised on politicized financial infrastructure, fiat standards, constant monetary debasement, debt monetization, right? So it is political working on Bitcoin or crypto technology. That's a political idea. But yeah, we have now, we need to broaden our mandate and our focus because the rest of the world is interested in us now.
0: Yeah. It's crazy how, how far this has come.
2: Yeah, this week, I mean, you know, we've been around in sort of Bitcoin land for a while now. This week has felt like one of the most critical in my entire sort of career in this industry.
0: Mm -hmm. I I don't think I have a better way to put it. I I literally think uh, I've been saying it behind closed doors that um, I wasn't into Bitcoin when the WikiLeaks stuff happened. So I don't know what that felt like or, or kind of how people thought about it. It feels like, the West specifically woke up and was like, oh shit. And the citizens woke up, the politicians woke up, like everyone was awoken as to what we were talking about historically around all these problems, you know, globally. They're not just in the developed world or a developing world. They're now here in the developed world.
1: Yeah, but how many people are actually going to go out and educate themselves on Bitcoin um, and actually go buy some? Of that? I, I, like, I've, long, I've long said that
0: people, oh, you know, every, everyone who's in this, uh, industry who has any sort of uh, public-facing, you know, under their real name, has a friend, a friend of a friend, a family member, somebody comes to them at some point is like, "Explain Bitcoin to me." <laughs> and frankly, when I probably wasn't as experienced, didn't have as much of a, a kind of knowledge base, I would start with like Bitcoin as a decentralized digital currency, but blah, blah, whatever. Now, somebody asks me about Bitcoin. I don't even talk about Bitcoin. I literally just explain the problem, right? And I explain. Yeah hey, did you know that that money you saved in your bank account two years ago is literally worth less now? And like, what? (laughs) And and like, let's just start, you know what I mean? Like the basic understandings of like, what money is, how it works, you know, what those issues are. Once you explain that stuff, the next question is like, well, what's the solution? Like Bitcoin, like why? And you just say 180 degree difference. Like, okay, how do I get something? (laughs) And so it's, you know, in some way, it's like uh, um, uh, understanding that people have to recognize the problem to get the solution. But I think that that's what Canada just did. Like Canada just literally just said, let's open the kimono. Let's bring it as close to home as possible. And here is, you know, the financial censorship problem. And I think there's a lot of people who just are like, what do you mean that I donated? Like the donate, the the truckers is one thing is like, oh, you participated. Right. I think the actual like milestone moment was going after the donators.
2: Yeah. And
0: that felt like the overreach.
2: Ex post facto. Right. The ex post facto criminalization plus broad-based financial sanctioning of donors to a cause. We've seen plenty of crowdsourced donations for protests in the last two years, but this is the first one where you're sanctioning more people than the U.S. sanctioned after 9-11, right?
0: Crazy.
1: And Sorry. this is a nation when against its it own like that, people. It's crazy. Yeah.
0: Before we end, uh, you guys raised a new fund. What type of founders are you guys looking for and what, what can we do to help you? Where should we send people on the internet?
2: Uh Victor Charlie, That's our website. Um, same same story as the previous two funds, just bigger, more dry powder, and uh, seed stage and Series A. Uh, you know, no, no pre seed. Uh, we're a little too big for that, probably. Um, and uh, you know, crypto financial infrastructure. That's uh, our number one thing. We do all kinds of stuff. You can see our portfolio on our website. Um, but also broadening our focus to decentralized internet infrastructure and applications, which I think is tremendously important, uh, you know, spanning the whole crypto space. Um, yeah, so we're ready, ready to blast. If you have an idea,
1: DM Nick on Twitter. DMs are open. DMs are, open. Just, DMs are open. I just dropped
0: uh, gotta Nick's good. Twitter gotta account. Have too. Make sure that you uh, you follow him. You can't miss him. He's Nick Cartel. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Cartel GM. <laughs> uh, what, what is the, uh, give us the quick two seconds on why, why is your name Nick Cartel now? Rotten? People
2: are making fun of me for moving to Miami and like... Looking Cuban or whatever, Um, and someone like made the pun that is Nick Cartel instead of Nick Carter. So, gotta recognize a good pun. Yeah,
0: that's pretty good. Uh, Did you watch um, uh, the documentary on the on the eighties in uh, Miami? Um, No, I gotta learn about the history. What what is the name of? uh, Huh? No. um,
2: Oh God! I watched a documentary called Miami Vice the other day.
0: It's a joke. It's not a documentary. <laughs> I know. I know. Hold we, on. We uh, what is it called? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Co- uh, I think it's called Cocaine Cowboys, Kings of Miami. Yes. Right? Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. You're right. You're right. I, I thought for some reason Cocaine Cowboys was like an older movie. Yeah. There's two of them. So I'm sorry. There's two of them. There's one in 2006 called Cocaine Cowboys. That's not the one. There's a brand new one that just came out. So that's why I was confused. Uh, and... I guess technically this is all part of one series that this guy's been doing for like 15 years. Wow! But this one is called the Kings of Miami, and uh, it's on Netflix. I mean, just you just gotta watch
2: it. I think the third one's gonna be called Blockchain Cowboys.
0: <laughs> uh i'm not gonna go there so i'll just let uh, billy corbin yeah. if you want a co-producer this could be clips uh, of nick, show. nick cartel will uh we'll be there ready to go <laughs> all right buddy thank you so much for coming in and doing this we uh, we had fun thanks so much for listening to today's episode i really hope you guys enjoyed this one make sure you're subscribed on apple spotify or your favorite podcast player and if you're looking to try to transition to get a new job in the bitcoin or crypto industry we've got you covered head over to pompscryptocourse.com. We've developed a curriculum with the top teams across the industry. It's a three-week intensive training program with over 50 events packed into that three-week time period. Go to pompscryptocourse.com to learn more, and I'll meet you guys for the next episode.